Hey everybody, it's David Burkus. I am so excited. My new book, Under New Management, launches in just a few short months. If you want to get a special preview of the book and find out more about it, I've put together some awesome previews and pre-order bonuses for first movers. To get on that list, text first mover to 33444. That's first mover, all one word, to 33444, or go to com first mover. Now, on to this episode of the Leader Lab Podcast. Hi, this is Susan Fowler, and this is Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Well, you know, I, that is such a profound question, isn't it? Who are you? And from my motivation experience, uh, whatever you say next is what you would consider a self-identifying I, um, activity like who am I? I am uh, what I the way I'd like to self-identify is I am a writer, a researcher, a communicator, a catalyst for helping people live their best lives. Is that good enough? That's awesome. You see, you hit on one of the reasons I love to open with that question, and it's it's drawn from a lot of different motivational and identity type of theories, and you know. So often people just say their position, but their position only sort of scratches one itch and there's a larger thing, right? And so my favorite answers are when people say, don't just say like, oh, I'm so-and-so in such-and-such organization, when they actually say like, here's what I'm about, here's what I do, et cetera. Um, and it's, I think, you know, we get a lot of, this is totally off, we'll talk about the book here in a second, but we're on this interesting tangent. Um, I think we give a lot of flack to when people ask in the United States that the most common sort of cocktail party question, you know, so what do you do? But at the same time, like the answer to that question is incredibly important and really does tell you a lot about the person. Absolutely, absolutely. And and even the tone of voice when a person answers, you know, oh, I am a manager at XYZ company or, you know, I am in the leadership business and I develop people. I mean, wh- what are, what two totally different ways of approaching what you do every day? Right, no, absolutely. And, and then there are the people that, the, the folks, I think, that sort of don't like the question are the ones that say, like, oh, I'm just such and such, which to me basically means, like, they haven't found that thing that mm. they're sort of internally uh, motivated, for lack of a better term, to sort of be and identify with. And so they've just sort of settled for some sort of job. But, e- like, even in that, it might make you uncomfortable to answer it, but it tells the listener a lot about you and where you are in your sort of journey of life. Yeah. You know, one of the best um, answers that I ever had to, to that question that you asked was I was talking to a project manager at the Ken Blanchard companies. And these uh, project managers are people that just have to deal with a million details and last minute stuff and salespeople's demands and client demands. And, you know, it's, it's a really almost, um, it could be a very thankless job and a very high pressured job. And I said, I asked her, you know, if you had to describe what you do as a project manager, what is it you actually do? And I'll never forget, she said, I am a detective. She says, every day I consider myself, the, the, I, I put on my like uh, Sherlock Holmes hat and I come in and I'm solving problems and I'm getting to the root of the problem and I'm trying to figure out how we can make it better. And the way she described it, she actually almost put on, took on a persona when she came to work that was so different than what you might think of as a project manager. And she loved it. All day long, she felt like she was solving problems and fixing issues. It was really interesting. 
Oh, I totally. And I think, you know, to me, it also speaks to this idea around that, that the activities that you sort of do and engage in are so much different than this sort of traditional org chart type of thing. Yeah. What position do you occupy, et cetera? And I love the idea of taking that value from uh, the activities you, you engage in. You know, it would have been it would have been super easy even for you. It would have been super easy for you to just answer that, you know, you're one of the developer, one of the lead developers at the Ken Blanchard company for a bunch of different products, including optimal motivation. And we'll, we'll talk about a ton of that it would have been so easy for you to say that. But instead, mm-hmm. it's, you know, here are the activities that I do, which I think is cool. And which will make sense by the time everybody's done listening to our conversation, because we're here to talk about um, a book that that we I think we got overly philosophical uh, for a second, but the book sort of will lead people there. Um, the book is titled "Why Motivating People Doesn't Work and What Does." Um, but before we talk about the book, even I know I just mentioned it. I also want to talk about an awesome piece that I read in Harvard Business Review back in November, I think, because yeah. it perfectly and succinctly stated uh, how much and why I hate Maslow's hierarchy. Um, and and a bunch of other sort of models and outdated ideas around motivation. Let's let's talk a little bit about not, maybe not necessarily why Maslow was bunk because it's pretty easy to know why it was never able to be validated in any sort of studies. But like why fundamentally we sort of know what is underneath people's um, needs and drives and what they're motivated, what needs they're motivated to satisfy, and it doesn't look like a pyramid at all. That, that's right, David. And can I just say that that Harvard Business Review blog, I spent weekends writing it. I mean, probably 40 hours you know, of time to put into it because I just wanted it to – it was my first blog for HBR. And I was so disappointed because it came out on Thanksgiving Day. And then the Monday after Thanksgiving – um, the editor contacted us and said, what in the heck happened? She had 75,000 hits on Thanksgiving with that blog. And it just went on to, I, you can't even believe the people that retweeted that blog. I mean, really high level people. And I think it really struck a chord. And the chord that I hope that it struck was that we go along, we go around talking about motivation because it's one of the most prevalent things in the in our work and, and in our lives. And so you hear managers being held accountable for motivating people and you hear coaches motivating athletes and you hear parents trying to motivate their kids and 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 so everybody's kind of looking for the magic bullet around motivation. And when Maslow came out with his theory in the 40s, he was just saying, you know what, here's some ideas. Let's just, you know, let's just kind of experiment with these ideas. And and that's what's happened over the years is that people put ideas out there and then they resonate despite any empirical evidence or any substantial truth to them. And I think people thought a pyramid would be easy, that it would give them a structured way to to follow. But the damage that it's done is that we as individuals and leaders and organizations have always thought, oh, people cannot experience a high-quality motivational experience unless they have all of these other basics in the bottom of the pyramid fulfilled. And yet now what we really know through science and not just exposition, what we really know is that there are three basic psychological needs. And if those psychological needs are fulfilled, uh, then we can have a high quality motivational experience, regardless of what else is happening around us or what el- whatever is happening in the workplace. Yeah, I've always thought it was interesting just to, just to you know pick on Maslow for a second more, and then we'll talk about those things. 
uh, every time I've had to sort of talk about um, Maslow's hierarchy in the classroom, I actually apologize because I say, like, I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes explaining to you something. Then I'm going to spend five more minutes explaining to you why it's terrible. And, <laughs> and we're going to spend 15 minutes talking about something that's not true, but that you need to know just because so many people out there think it is. Right. That's crazy. And, and but and it's but it's also like it's one of those things that if you think about it for more than like 30 seconds, you know, it's not true. Right. Like the, right. the base of the pyramid are all these physiological needs that people give up, you know, in, in search of spirituality or even just losing weight. Right. People give up right. some of those all the time. Right. And then you some got of, it. Some of the most motivated people. Right. Are, are um, the clergy and, and nuns. Right. Who give up one of Maslow's basest of base level needs all the time. But interestingly, if you put it through the lens of those sort of the three um, needs that actually people are motivated to satisfy, it makes perfect sense. So so let's talk about those. Those come from uh, the work of two brilliant people um, mm. and then a bunch of other people that sort of added on to that and this whole sort of category of self-determination theory, which if you've never actually heard, now is the time for those of you listening to like get on and, and spend countless hours on the internet um, researching it because you've you've heard bits and pieces of it through various different authors before, but you probably haven't heard the whole thing, which is one of the reasons I love uh, your book so much is that it kind of outlines that. It's this wonderful primer on the science of what actually does motivate people. Yeah, and so thank you so much, David, for recognizing that. So let me just say that self-determination theory and the website, which is just www.selfdeterminationtheory.com, is just a treasure trove of information, academic journal articles and conferences and uh, books that uh, really um, are built off of the original work of Edward Deasy. A lot of people call him Desi, but my first meeting with him, I said, Dr. Desi, thank you so much for meeting with me. And he said, Deasy, as in Washington, D.C. And I've never forgotten that. So uh, Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan, who are um, just exemplars of this theory. And, and D.C. is really the father, if you will, of intrinsic motivation. But what has um, happened since the 60s when he did his original Soma Puzzle experiments is that it's just been um, validated and broadened. And what I have been doing for the past 15 years is working with people like Edward D.C., Richard Ryan, Marilyn Gagne, and um, Kenan Sheldon and other researchers and learning from them and then taking the research to make it practical, pragmatic, and usable for the average person and for leaders, in case they're not average. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so it's research that is foundational, and it turns everything we've known about motivation literally on its head. So even when we say, is a person motivated or not, that that's the wrong question to be asking. What self-determination theory would ask you to ask is, what is the quality of a person's motivation? Because we're always motivated. People are always motivated. The question is not if a person is motivated. The question is why. Hmm. So um, <clears throat> why are people motivated? I'm just kidding. Yeah, so so there's there's I a, totally a, a, totally oversimplified it, but I you just set it up so wonderfully. I had to run with it. <laughs> Thanks for that, David. Um, well, uh, the reason people are motivated could be, and what uh, is borne out in research for six particular reasons. So a person could be motivated, and and, and by the way, what I um, I and my colleagues, Dr. David Facer and Dr. Dre Zagarmi and I have created is called the Spectrum of Motivation Model, which is in the cover of my book and then is revealed throughout the book. 
And the spectrum of motivation reflects six reasons that people might be motivated, and we call them motivational outlooks. So a person, for example, could be uh, in the disinterested motivational outlook. Um, I just recently was talking to um, people in a huge organization, Hewlett-Packard, that is splitting in two. They're becoming two distinct companies. And so they asked me to speak to a a division of 5,000 people because these people... um, could be many of them in the disinterested motivational outlook because they were so overwhelmed by the ramifications of that that split of not understanding or knowing what to do uh, that they've just checked out you know just whatever is going to happen is going to happen you know I just but in a negative way um, you know low energy you know why put in the hours if I don't even know what's going to happen to me what's interesting to me though is that I actually took a poll of these people and there were very few disinterested motivational outlooks in that group. Um, and there were very few actually external motivational outlooks. Motiv- um, external motivational outlook is when you're motivated uh, by some kind of um, external reward. It could be tangible like money or rewards and incentives, or it could be intangible rewards like power, status, image. We did have a number of people who were in the motivational outlook that we call imposed, meaning they were fearful of what was going to happen. They didn't know. They felt like kind of victimized by what was going on, um, that when you're in the imposed motivational outlook, you feel like you have to do something. It's not like you have control over it. The imposed motivational outlook is anytime we feel pressure or tension. Um, And so I think a lot of us, I know that I probably live a good part of my life in the imposed motivational outlook because I'm always wary about expectations. And those three motivational outlooks, David, are considered the junk food of motivation. That when you have those three motivational outlooks, you are not going to experience positive energy, vitality, or a sense of well-being. And this is where a lot of our disability claims are, are happening in organizations because people are living in those those um, suboptimal motivational outlooks. Um, sh- should I take a breath, or should I? Um, do you want well, me to explain uh, the other three? Let's let's <laughs> let's table the other three. Um, give everybody something to look forward to. But okay. I, I guess one of my questions is: those also, like you said, people are stuck in them. Those also seem to be the ones that are sort of most imposed on people by management and by organizations. And w- why do you think that is? Um, I th- I think there's a number of reasons for it. Uh, it um, the carrot and the stick, which we're also familiar with. So the external motivational outlook is the carrot, you know, believing that because we've always thought that motivation was a quantity of something you have. And so if people don't have enough motivation, the default position was let's give them something to make up for the motivation they don't have. So it was a misunderstanding of the very nature of human motivation, which led to this whole idea of let's give people a carrot. And then that also is the stick, which is the imposed motivational outlook. Okay, people aren't motivated enough. Let's whip them into shape. Let's 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 motivate them through pressure, tension, stress, um, adherence to metrics. Um, you know, this just kind of um, way of of burgeoning people into um, doing what we want them to do. And so it's a it's become a default. And a lot of that was based on the humanistic. Um, research that was done by like B.F. Skinner, where, wow, we can get parrots to do anything we want them to do. Um, Not parrots, pigeons. Uh, I call it the pecking pigeon paradigm. We can get pigeons to do anything we want them to do by giving them a pellet. And so they just figured the same thing was true with human beings. If we just give them something, we can get them to do whatever we want them to do. So let's give them a carrot, let's give them a stick. So I think it was a misunderstanding, a misrepresentation 
representation of research. And we thought that it worked. But now, especially with disability claims um, being almost, uh, there's now mental disability claims are almost overtaking physical disability claims. And if you really think about it in the workplace, a lot of disability that's physical is because people weren't um, optimally motivated to follow safety regulations, for example. So if you really get down to it, a lot of our disability claims are mental. And so a lot of that is created because of people being fed this junk food motivation um, and, and thinking that it works. And it might work sometimes in the short run, but it never works in the long run. And we found it doesn't even work in the short run because it tends to thwart people's creativity and innovation. So there's just a lot of great research and science around this. Yeah, I told, and and I mean practical experience. I mean, we've all had that colleague that would call in sick whenever they were sick of work, instead of legitimately <laughs> sick, right? So, so we know it's true from experience. All right, so let's let's move um, up up in the spectrum and let's move towards sort of what's optimal in those those different states that we really actually want to have people in and, and want to align with, but also sort of leverage in order to, you know, not need so much disability and save a ton of money on carrots. <laughs> exactly. Which is what happened in the bad economy, right? It's like we ran out of carrots and now what motivates people? So we were, a lot of sales organizations were like, oh my gosh, how do we motivate our salespeople? We've, we've, grown them up on carrots and now we're trying to get them to eat something different and, and you know they don't have a taste for anything else um, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that you said what you said about um, these three optimal motivational outlooks giving us alternatives because that is what we didn't have when um, people look at the, the work of DC and Ryan and boil it down to the simplistic duality of extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. You know, think about this. What, you know, you probably love what you do for a living. That's why you're doing it. I love what I do for a living. But I have to tell you, there are a lot of times in what I do for a living that I'm not intrinsically motivated. When I'm standing in line uh, in the security line at the airport and have to go through security, when I'm filling out my expense reports, I mean, there are just things that I will never be intrinsically motivated to do because intrinsic motivation is where you just love the activity for the inherent reward of the activity itself. You actually enjoy it. And so what the spectrum of motivation shows is that there are alternatives. If you're not purely intrinsically motivated, there, which is what we call the inherent motivational outlook, you could have the aligned motivational outlook or the integrated motivational outlook. And these are not purely intrinsic, but here's what's exciting. You experience the same positive energy, vitality, and well-being, maybe even more so. It may actually be more sustainable than pure intrinsic motivation. So it gives you alternatives. And to experience the aligned motivational outlook is when you're able to align whatever you're doing to a developed value that you have, that, that you derive meaning from. And the integrated motivational outlook is when it, it's what we were talking about earlier. It's a self-identifying activity. It's something that is purposeful for you. But at some point, that was conscious. Maybe now it's integrated into who you are as a human being, but at one point it was conscious. So I consciously decided 30 years ago I wanted to be a catalyst to improve people's lives because I teach what I most need to learn and I wanted to live, live a better life. Now, that is just who I am. That it's, it's, it's part of my being, but it was an integrated motivational outlook. It's not what you would have called purely intrinsic. It's something I chose consciously to do. 
So um, that's what's exciting about this model is it gives people alternatives. And then the model is not only descriptive of those six motivational outlooks, but it's prescriptive. It gives people how do you shift? How do you go from suboptimal to optimal? So it's descriptive and it's prescriptive. Yeah, and I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two things I love about it. One, it, it explains those things that we're not intrinsically motivated to do what we can do. Like, for example, the airport security. It's it's actually a brilliant oversimple example, but it's a brilliant example of aligned, right? I'm intrinsically motivated to not die. And so going through the airport security and knowing everybody else is going through it is, is aligned with my intrinsic motivation or my value of not dying, right? Again, total oversimplification. But Well, let me, let me maybe give you a better example. Right. Um Okay, because, uh, yes, you could go there. You, you could say, I value life, and I value other people's lives, and so I'm going to go through here. And that would be the aligned motivational outlook. It's not really an intrinsic motivational outlook. You may have an intrinsic motivation to live, but going, you don't have an intrinsic motivation to go through the line to do it. Right. And so that would be a value based on yeah. a belief that you have. But let's say that I'm going, and this is exactly what happened to me. I was um, standing, I always look for the shortest line, and I get pressure. I feel start to feel pressure, like i got to get the shortest line. And then I get in the wrong line, and I get behind some guy that's taking everything out of his pockets, and then he forgets his belt and, you know, drives me crazy. And I feel pressure and tension, and that's the imposed motivational outlook. And so I said to myself, why am I doing this to myself? I'm, this is not healthy. So my first step was to identify that I was in an imposed motivational outlook. And then I said, what values do I have that might help me to not experience that? And then I noticed a line that had a, a family in it. And those are the lines I always really avoid. I purposely got behind a family. And they actually asked me um, to you know, if I wanted to move ahead of them. I said, no, 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 it's fine. Go ahead. So I thought, I have a value around developing patience. Maybe this will help me. Then I noticed that they had, a, you know, a, a little baby, like a baby baby. And it was taking forever to get all of that paraphernalia on the, um, uh, what do you call that thing? that The conveyor belt? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> the conveyor belt. And so I, I said, excuse me, would it help? I hope you don't think I'm weird, but would it help if I held your baby? Now, I love babies. So there I am holding this child and they're putting all their paraphernalia on the conveyor belt and they start to walk through uh, security and I go, excuse me, do you want your baby? <laughs> it's like they forgot the baby. So they got the baby through and then on the other side, I held the baby as they packed everything up. And I have to tell you, later on, they saw me in the waiting area and they, they thanked me again and said, you know, we don't know if we could have gotten through that without you. This is our first time traveling with a baby. And they, they were so grateful. And then I realized I was grateful because I loved holding that baby. And then the satisfaction that I got from helping them, I actually now, I swear to gosh, I go through security and I'm looking forward to it. It's like, who can I help? How can I have that sense of well-being again? Because it was fabulous. So that is the aligned motivational outlook at work. And it's powerful. I um that's way more powerful than what I did. I just signed up for TSA PreCheck, and uh, I'm scared. Oh. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm going through that in Denver next month. Because <laughs> yeah. um, I value time as well. Right, right. What I what I love about the book mostly, and what I love about the model is I, I think, you know, for, first there are those people that think we should motivate people, right? So, And what they mean by that is we should design an incentive, a carrot and stick system. 
And then there are people who are sort of starting to realize that there's the intrinsic and extrinsic. But what I love about this is that it's not even a mat. It's, it's not a binary thing, extrinsic or intrinsic. There are other sort of drivers like we've been talking about, the aligned, the imposed, all of those that sort of um, can also be optimal. And it, it, it to me, it's a, like you said, it's, it's um, prescriptive, but it's also descriptive of the reality, which is that some things that organizations need people to do and some things that people need to do are, uh, are exactly that. They don't fall into one of those two categories. And I love that we can sort of catch everything inside of this model, which is really yeah, great. They're, so- they're, 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 shade, they're shades of gray. And, um, and, but also um, what it does is it gives people uh, an opportunity to um, reflect on what they're experiencing and you know, really start to notice when they have a sense of well-being or not and when their psychological needs are being well met or not. So when people sense, when they, when they start to notice, wow, the reason I'm feeling imposed is because my autonomy has been taken away. I don't feel like I have any choices. And autonomy is one of the three foundational psychological needs. And maybe um, I'm experiencing um, some uh, resentment. And one of the reasons I'm feeling that resentment, if I understand the models, I go, wow, it's because there is injustice in what's happening here. I, I really feel like there's um, distributive or procedural injustice in my organization. Well, that's eroding my sense of relatedness. That's 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 creating a wedge between me and, and the organization I work with. And that's one of the three psychological needs. Um, and sometimes we feel uneasy. We're going into a meeting or we're working with a client or we're going to do a media interview and we're feeling uneasy because we don't we're not going to feel competent. We're afraid someone's going to ask us a question we can't answer, or we don't know that we can um, um, meet the challenges that are in front of us. And and that's our our need for competence being thwarted. And so when people understand these three basic psychological needs of autonomy, relatedness, and competence, they can start to really understand why they're experiencing the motivational outlook they're experiencing. And that's when you can start to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. So um, kudos to you on the model and kudos to you on sort of finally figuring out how to not only explain what's really going on, but help coach people through how to how to shape uh, their organizations, the way that they lead and and to get people to stop trying to motivate other people and really just use the science. Yeah. Science yeah, of it all. And, yeah so, and I, I should have said that David, cause that's what I wanted to say is just that what leaders need to understand is that they're not motivating people, that people are already motivated. What they're trying to do is help people identify their current motivational outlook and then help them shift from suboptimal to optimal by making sure their psychological needs are being met. Perfect. And if, if people want to figure out how to do that, know more about the model, the book, why motivating people doesn't work and what does, um, we also, uh, where can we find you? I wanted to find more about it outside the book. You know what, David? Um, I have a wonderful website, www.susanfowler.com. And the reason I say it's wonderful is a lot of people have helped me with it. And there's actually a free motivational outlook assessment uh, on the website. I would encourage people to take it. It's really fun and you get immediate results. And then also the Ken Blanchard company website, uh, we have a training program called Optimal Motivation that I literally beta tested around the world uh, for five years. And it's so powerful. If you go to the Ken Blanchard company website and um, look in the Optimal Motivation page, there's some wonderful resources, white papers and um, articles that I think people would find really helpful. Well, awesome. And now you, now you know what's coming. We're switching from the book and those resources to you and asking you our questions. The first being, uh, what are you reading right now? 
And I know I'm probably one of those people that has 15 books out, um, but there's two books that I want to mention. And one is because I want to give a shout out to the first time I heard Leader Lab was with you and Dory Clark and her book Stand Out because I'm really shifting my motivational outlook around social media. And uh, that interview with Dory was so compelling and inspirational and I got her book. And so I'm really working on my social media. But the other one is called um, Handbook of Mindfulness uh, and it's edited by Kirk Warren Brown, who's one of the most um, fascinating researchers on mindfulness, and a lot of what I write about in the book around mindfulness is based on his work, but it's also um, co-authored with Richard Ryan, who is one of the co-authors of uh, Self-Determination Theory, so it's a wonderful handbook. Hmm, hmm. So the, the book is out, the Optimal Motivation Courses is out, but I know there's still probably a lot of work ahead of you that luckily you're motivated to uh, to pursue in spreading this Opt- message. Optimally, optimally motivated. Optimally, mo- there you perfect, sorry. <laughs> Um, so what's next for you? Do you know, the book I started out to write was how to use these ideas to shift your own motivational outlook as an individual for things as from a variety of like dieting, um, bad habits to um, all kinds of personal issues and dealing with conflict. And so the book out now is really for the workplace and for leaders, but, but you can also get a lot about it about your own motivation, but my next book, uh, which I'm starting to just kind of um, put together, is is going to be more individually focused. So it'll be kind of a bookend, um, you know, the leader and the individual. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, and and you've got a little bit of experience that we I forgot to mention. Didn't you you co-authored um, Self Leadership and the One Minute Manager with, uh, with Ken. Dr. Ken Blanchard? Didn't you? Yeah. So. So an awesome combination, a great bookend, like you said, and so we'll uh, we'll be looking out for that. In the meantime, Susan, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thank you, David. I enjoyed it thoroughly.